Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. Welcome to Crosspoint Community Church. So glad that you're here with us this morning. Uh, my name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here. And if I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'd love to get a chance to do that after the service. If you're in person, uh, online, so glad you guys are here as well. It's great to be with you this morning. Um, you can go ahead and uh, take out your Bible. We'll just jump right to where we're going to be uh, looking at today. You can open up your Bible. If you have a physical Bible, wonderful. If you have a digital one, you can turn it on and head to Mark chapter 14. And this morning, we're going to be reading uh, verses 12 to 42. And if you have been with us the last few weeks and and are paying attention, you might be like, wait a second, we skipped some verses. And that's true, uh, but it's intentional. Um, We didn't actually skip them. We we put them together into kind of a little bit of like a mini message uh, that was posted on our social media. And so if you're kind of wondering, hey, what happened in chapter 14, verses 1 through 11, go on our Facebook or Instagram, and you can watch uh, some of the point of those verses and kind of catch up where what we walk through for that. But we're going to pick up reading today in verse 12. And so uh, if you've been with us over the past several months, you know that we've been walking through the gospel of Mark, the story of Jesus. And quite honestly, even as someone who was raised in the church and around Jesus my whole life, It's been very convicting walking through this, just to take the time to slowly and clearly look at like, this is what Jesus means. This is what he's about. These are the values that that his kingdom embraces, and this is what his followers need to look like. And as we contrast that against our own lives, I feel like many of us, if we're being honest, we're left lacking. We realize like, man, there's this divide. We're so grateful that Jesus has opened our eyes to it because uh, then he can do that work in us. It's been really, really good, and we're actually coming to a close on this series. It'll be wrapping up around Easter, and uh, the passage we're going to look at today is kind of the calm, relative calm. There's still some craziness that goes down, but the relative calm before the storm, where we leave off reading this morning and where we're going to pick up next Sunday, things really start to clip along. Things really start to get crazy. However, Even though this is kind of a little bit of a calm before the storm, it's a seemingly kind of quiet night, even though some significant things happen. The word that I keep coming back to when I was reading this passage and taking time to to study and pray and consider, God, what do you want? What do you want me to say about this? My mind kept coming back to the word heavy. Because what we're going to talk about this morning is really heavy. I just don't think there's any way, other way to describe it. It's just some heavy truth that uh, is really necessary for us to walk through. But I think it's really important for us to realize that just because something is heavy, something seems like a big weight to take onto ourselves as we think about it, doesn't mean that it's not good news. And just because something is heavy, makes us think, maybe is convicting to us, it doesn't mean that it's without hope. And I, I think as human beings, we, we tend to approach heavy truth or heavy scenarios with kind of basically two different uh, dividing pathways. I think for some of us, we run into something that seems really heavy or seemingly overwhelming. We 
try to get through it as quickly as possible. We try to avoid it, right? Either we shine it up to make it seem a little less harsh or intense than it is, or we just try to like get past it as soon as we can. Don't sit there for very long. Uh, when we do that, though, I think it's really easy for us to miss the point of why this truth is here or why we're walking through this situation. But that's how some of us deal with heavy truth and situations. Some of us, we go the opposite direction, and we tend to live in extremes as people. Or Some of us go the opposite direction, and we let the heavy situation or truth completely overwhelm us. Like we're completely drowning in it, and it it makes it hard for us to see the hope that exists in this heavy scenario. See, one of the things I think that, that Jesus consistently calls his followers to is to learn how to live in tension. And that, that's true in so many areas of our life. We have to, as far as Jesus, learn how to live and manage tensions. Um, and I think that that is as true for this as anything else. But I think a really perfect example of, of how that can look is how we as Christians deal with death. Um, probably every person in here, maybe, maybe, has experienced some kind of loss of someone that they love. And we have to learn how to manage that tension of, man, it feels heavy, it feels overwhelming, it's, it's sad, and we grieve, but there's like hope there. How do we live in both those spaces? But it is possible. I, I was reminded of that this week. My, my parents, man, God bless them, my mom and dad both had their fathers pass away within about a week of each other over the past week. And so, big emotions, right? Big scenarios. Hard thing to watch and to, and to walk through. And so, I've been on the phone a lot with my parents over this last week, just trying to be as much of an encouragement as I can be from here. And I was just reminded of how true this can be for followers of Jesus. Because my parents are walking through some heavy, heavy stuff but it's so beautiful to see that they continuously point back to the hope, not diminishing the heaviness or the grief or the sadness, or in our case, maybe today, the conviction, not diminishing it, but understanding that there is hope even in it. And I think that if we decide right here and now, before we even get into the passage that we're going to look at this morning, we have a much better chance of really hearing what Jesus wants to say to us. So yes, it'll be heavy, but look for where the hope is because it's in there and actually it's our only hope we're going to find today. And so let's pick up reading uh, in chapter 14, right at verse 12. Here's what it says. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Jesus' disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Um, This would have been a fairly common thing for them to ask. It's a reasonable thing for them to ask uh, because as we've talked about the last few weeks, Jesus and his disciples were in the city of Jerusalem for the uh, Passover festival. And long story short, it was this big, big festival that would bring all of these Jewish people to Jerusalem where they would celebrate the reality that God rescued their people out from under slavery, um, from under the Egyptians, uh, way back in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. And God told them, hey, every year remember the way that I rescued you. And there's, there's all these rituals and there's these events that they would uh, take part in to remind themselves and remember that God was their rescue, that God was their redemption. And one of the things that they would do as part of that week's festivities is they would have this thing called a Passover meal. Jewish people today even have a Seder, and it's very similar in nature. And so, When they would sit down and have this meal, they would have all these different pieces involved, and they'd have different foods, and they'd 
they drink the, the cup at different times. And it was all very symbolic, and there was a ton that goes into it that we don't necessarily have a ton of time to do today. But it was all in service to the reminder that God has rescued us. He is our rescue, and he can be trusted. And so this wasn't a new thing to Jesus or his disciples. They all surely had experienced this quite a few times, most likely. And so it was a fair question for them to ask, like, where are we going to do this Passover? Because, you know, Jesus didn't have like an Airbnb in Jerusalem that he owned that he could drop in any time. He was, they were very nomadic. They just went, went where they needed to go and they crashed where they needed to crash and all of that. And so they didn't have a place. And so they asked, where, where do you want us to go and, and prepare this meal? Fair question, but Jesus gives them a kind of weird answer. Here's what he says in verse 13. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. I don't know if, uh, if these two disciples that Jesus asked to go do this were the same two disciples that Jesus got to go steal the donkey in uh, the story of the triumphal entry. But if they were the same guys, they had the worst luck of like any of the disciples because they got these weird jobs where Jesus was like, go here and look. It, it feels like a spy movie, right? Like go here and look for the man with the jar of water. And if he gives you a wink, you know, go around the corner, follow him there, and then there'll be a clue. And it, it just feels like this strange scenario that Jesus asking. Some people think he had set it up ahead of time. Other people are very adamantly against that, that this was something that, uh, that was divine in nature that set up where Jesus and his disciples would uh, have this Passover meal. So it's a kind of strange set of instructions, especially for these two guys. I like to believe they were the same guys, just getting the bad short straws. Uh, but they listened to him, and it turns out pretty well for them. We find out in verse 16. It says, and the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. So they get all the elements ready. They get the room all, all situated. Everything is ready for Jesus and his disciples to come have this nice meal together and remember God's rescue uh, over the people of Israel. Verse 17 says, And when it was evening, because they would wait till the evening to have this meal together, when it was the evening, he came to this place with the twelve. And they're having this nice thing. And everybody's happy with what's going on here. And then Jesus drops like this huge bomb right in the middle of it. And the way that I think of it is, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. Remember how there was once upon a time in November where we would gather together and eat Thanksgiving dinners? Do you remember that? Like if in the distant, distant past, we used to do that, uh, which is actually just a year ago, but it feels like 15 years. But uh, Thanksgiving dinner, imagine yourself at Thanksgiving dinner, and I'm sure so many of us have had this experience, I know I have, where everyone's around, family's around, and there's that one kind of weird cousin or uncle or whoever that just without fail every time just like throws some statement into the mix that just makes the whole thing go up in flames. You know what I'm talking about? Like some uncle's like, so I heard you voted for fill in the blank, whatever one offends you most. Tell us why you did that. Or it's like, hey, I heard, I heard this cousin's dating so-and-so. Oh, did you not know that? Sorry. And the, the whole thing becomes just awkward and tense. And I'm sure we've all experienced something like that. If you can imagine your most awkward Thanksgiving dinner moment, it can't even hold a candle to what Jesus is about to say to his disciples here. 
Let's read it together. He just drops this massive bomb. They're eating. Things are nice. Everyone's enjoying themselves. And in verse 18, it says this. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. So they're just having a nice old time, and Jesus decides this is the moment. He lit, you know, looks up from his cup or whatever he's eating, and he looks around. And he's like, hey, just so that you all know, one of you is about to betray me. One of you that is in this room sharing this kind of intimate meal together, yeah, one of you is going to betray me. And he just goes right back to eating, you know? Like, <laughs> these disciples surely would have been like, what in the world is he saying? No way. We've been with him for three years. We've seen him do impossible things. No one in this room could possibly betray Jesus. But he decides in this moment to let them know someone here is going to betray me. And this is how they respond in verse 19. They began to be sorrowful. So they were they were hurt by this, maybe personally. They were sad that... Somebody in the crew could possibly betray Jesus. And it says, and to say, they began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, is it I? Is it me? One by one, they're going up to Jesus saying, like, am I the one that's going to betray you? I mean, I guess I could see myself doing it, but I don't think I would do that. I could definitely see this guy doing it. But like me, do you think I'm the one that could betray you? Jesus elaborates a little bit in verse 20. He says, he said to them, it is one of the 12, one of my best friends that I've done all this ministry with, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me, the symbol of trust and commitment, sharing a dish together. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, fulfilling scripture that Jesus would have to die, would have to endure what he was about to endure. So he's not saying that this is a surprise, but he is saying, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Harsh, right? Harsh thing to say. And what we know uh, from having the big picture is we know that, that Jesus is talking about Judas. And in fact, the few verses that we skipped over has that interaction where Judas goes to the religious leaders and says, hey, I don't know, this thing's out of control. I'm not sure I want to be a part of it anymore, and I want to turn in Jesus. I'll tell you where he is so you can go arrest him. And they offer to, to pay him money for his services. And so we know uh, that Judas is the one that Jesus is talking about, but we don't get a ton of information about Judas in the Gospel of Mark, except specifically for his betrayal. But in the other Gospels, the other stories of Jesus, Matthew, Luke, and John, we get a little bit more of a picture of who Judas was. And there's some alarming red flags, for sure, in how he treated people and how he dealt with finances and in his integrity, um, definitely in his willingness to let the enemy take root in his life. There's, there's definitely a few red flags there. And so it can be easy for us as we learn about Judas to kind of make him the bad guy. Like, yeah, I mean, he's like this sleazeball. Of course he would, like, betray Jesus, like that guy. He, he, I agree with Jesus. It would be better if he was never born. And it's really easy to find a villain and to uh, vilify Judas specifically. But I think we need to take a pause here on this. Because while Judas betrayed Jesus in a physical sense, spiritually, are we, are we really that different? Are we really so different than Judas? I know that I trade in Jesus for things that I want and think are important all the time. I bet you do too. We trade in Jesus literally for money sometimes, exactly like Judas or a love of money. 
Oftentimes, we're willing to betray who Jesus has made us to be for power, for position, maybe control or autonomy over our own lives, maybe the rights and privileges that we think we deserve and no one should be able to take from us. See, I I really do think we need to understand that supernaturally, spiritually, we have all played a significant part with Jesus' need to die on a cross. Our sin and rebellion, our obsession with comfort and control and doing things our own way has made it absolutely necessary for Jesus to do what he's about to do. And so before we get all up on Judas's business, we just really need to know that we aren't that different. Maybe a little different, but not that different. And we know that, that this betrayal doesn't just end with Judas, but was going to be true of all of the disciples. Jesus says that here in just a few moments. He says, you're all going to abandon me. You're all going to run out. You're all going to betray me. But in the middle of this very bleak picture, Jesus does something really heavy, but something that should give us incredible, incredible hope. Let's read in verse 22. This is what Jesus decides to do on the heels of letting them know, you are going to betray me. You are going to fail me. This is his response to that truth. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. What's Jesus doing here? He's explaining one more time to his disciples, but he goes like full youth pastor mode and like uses props. (laughs) He does like an object lesson. He's like, you see this bread, you see how it breaks. My body is going to be physically broken for you. You you see this cup as, as we drink it, as it gets poured out. This cup is my blood that will be poured out very soon, actually physically poured out for your benefit. But what we need to know is this is no mere physical death. This isn't just uh, a painful, painful execution. Jesus will also endure something that just, quite honestly, I don't think we have the capacity to wrap our brains around. But not only is there a a physical punishment that happens here, but there's also a, a spiritual one where Jesus takes the sin and the consequence of that sin of every person who had ever lived or ever would live onto himself to pay the price for it one time, once for all. I am very sure that these guys, not having experienced Jesus' crucifixion or his resurrection, did not super get the point of this. I'm pretty sure. But I'm sure that they understood the vibe. I'm sure that they understood that this was significant. And I'm really grateful, since we have the big picture, that Jesus did what he did in this moment. Because Christians for centuries now have been able to look back on this passage and the other ones and the other Gospels, and we've been able to use it to remember Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf through the act of communion, which we told you we're going to do today. And we're actually going to do right now, like right smack dab in the middle of the message, to draw attention to how important and significant it is. But here's the deal. As the band comes up and gets ready, Just like this Passover meal that they celebrated that night all those years ago could become a ritual for these people, could just become something they did because, yeah, it's important, and, yeah, I guess we'll do it. 
The same danger exists for us when it comes to communion. It can just be another thing we do every month, and it might not really mean too much to us. And honestly, I'm not sure the church is doing ourselves any favor because we're making, we're finding new ways to make those wafers seem less and less appealing all the time, right? I, I, let's just be, I'll be honest about that. And so it can be easy for us to miss the point, to not really understand the heaviness and hope that comes with what we're about to do. And there's lots of focal points that you could draw yourself to, but I want to focus in on one thing specifically this morning as we prepare to take communion together. I think it is incredibly impactful that Jesus, on the heels of saying, you are going to fail me, then makes a covenant with these people who are about to fail him, and, and one that already has. Covenant is, is an interesting thing. We don't have a ton of time to go into it all, but it's, it's this agreement that shows up in the Old Testament often. Um, and there's a few places in Scripture where God initiates a covenant with people. And what that always looks like is God makes these promises and he asks people to adhere to these commitments. And it's a, it's a partnership. It's an agreement. He makes one with Noah. He makes one with Abraham. He makes one with the nation of Israel. He makes one with King David. And lo and behold, God always ends up keeping his promises. And humans, without fail, always end up breaking their commitments. Always. They always end up failing. Yet, in this moment, Jesus says, I am making a new covenant with you. Not one that depends on an animal, not one that depends on your strength, but one that whose promise is fulfilled through the shedding of my blood. So get this, on the very night where Jesus was given over and deserted and, ab- and abandoned, Jesus made a blood oath with his own blood that he, even though we failed him, that he would never give us over to sin and death, that he would never desert us, and that he would never abandon us. That is incredibly good news for every single one of us. For those in the room who don't know Jesus, that's really good news for you because maybe you feel like if he knew who I was, if he knew what I had done, there's no way that he could love me. And so I just got to figure this out on my own. There's just no way. Jesus looks at you in your failure and on the heels of your deepest, darkest moment, he says, but I will fulfill the promise. I will take the price. For those of us in here who know Jesus and maybe have a running list from just this morning of ways that we've betrayed Jesus or that we've failed Jesus or that we've chosen our own ways, Jesus' response to our failure again is, I will fulfill my promise. You actually can't. So why don't you let me do it? That's heavy. But man, is there not a ton of hope in that statement? So we're going to sing this song and really just puts a lot of words to what we've been talking about. And I would really encourage you to just sing it straight up as a prayer, recognizing how we failed God, yet he consistently makes new and better promises that he never breaks to you and to me. Let's sing together as we consider and think about what Jesus has done for us.
took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And on that night in which we give him over, and on that night in which we desert him, Jesus spreads out his hands and gives us his body broken, saying, I promise that I will make you whole. And I promise that I will heal your hurts. Let's take the bread together.
Jesus took the cup and he passed it around and they all drank of it. And he said, this is my blood of the covenant, my promise that I will never back out on, which is poured out for many, which is all of us. And so on the night in which we deny him, and the night in which we abandon him, Jesus again spreads out his hands and pours out his blood, making the promise that I will save you from sin and death and the promise that I will make all things new. All things new in us and in the world around us. Let's take the cup together. This was a pretty significant moment. And like I said before, I'm not sure that the disciples fully got it. But I'm very sure that they felt the significance of that moment. But what we do with what Jesus just did uh, matters greatly moving out of that moment. Like we can, we can enjoy this moment that we have right now, but if it doesn't change what we do leading out of it, then how much could it possibly mean? And we see that happen in the life of the disciples, and maybe we're more like them than we might like to think. We pick up reading in verse 26. They have this very sweet, very significant moment, and they wrap up their Passover meal. <clears throat> and it says, when they had sung a hymn, most likely out of the Psalms, it says they went to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's lifted right out of the book of Zechariah. He says, I am the shepherd, you are the sheep. When I go down, you guys are going to spread. You'll scatter. But he says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And then Peter, of course, Peter, <laughs> perks up. And he says, even though they all fall away, I will not. So Peter, in his typical way, thinks he's the best, thinks he knows everything. He like stands straight up. He's like, these guys, yeah, maybe. They might, they might fall away. They might abandon you, but not me. I'm Peter. I have it together. I am with you all the way. And Jesus kind of takes him to task. And he says, truly, I tell you this, uh, I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, so this actual night where you're saying this, you will deny me three times. Peter's like, nah, I don't believe you. I'm not going to listen to you. He says emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Peter has ratcheted it up like all the way to here. Even if I have to die with you, Jesus, no way, I will not deny you. And then everybody else standing there is like, same, us too. <laughs> like he said it, but we'll agree. Yeah, we, we are with you, Jesus. There's no way we'll abandon you. There's no way we'll fail you. Even if we have to die, how many of us have made that exact same declaration? It's proven false pretty quickly. Verse 32 says this, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. It was a garden. Jesus had been there before. He enjoyed spending time there. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John. So he took his very, very best friends with him. They kind of went away from the rest of the 12. And it says this, he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Jesus was incredibly overwhelmed by what lay in front of him. 
He says, I am so sad. I am so grieved. I am so stressed. I am so overwhelmed by this. I could die right now. This is kind of a new look on Jesus. It certainly would be to the disciples. They had seen Jesus be really calculated. They had seen Jesus be really witty. They had seen Jesus be really compassionate. They'd even seen Jesus be kind of angry, but they hadn't seen him be seemingly broken like this. The weight of the physical death that he was about to endure surely was weighing on him. And like I said before, the weight of the spiritual consequence that was coming his way had to have just been absolutely overwhelming to the point where he said, I could even just die right now. And so he asks his three best friends, remain here and watch. Verse 35 says, and going a little further, he literally falls to the ground. And to be quite honest, if it was anybody but Jesus in this moment, I'd probably be like, stop being extra. Like, come on, get up. Like, it can't be that bad. But I just think that proves, like, Jesus was no slouch. He wasn't like a wuss, right? So, I mean, if, if, if he was so overwhelmed that it literally forced him to the ground, it has to be worth paying attention to. But he falls on the ground and he prays this, that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he says, Abba, Father. Abba is this very intimate word for Father. It would be like us saying Dad or Daddy. Father, all things are possible for you. You can do anything. Remove this cup from me. Wait, wasn't this the plan all along? Jesus asks the Father, if there's any other way for us to do this, please let's do it. This might be viewed as weakness in Jesus, but... I think it's the exact opposite. Like, I'm so grateful that we have a a, a Savior, that we serve a God who doesn't sit way off in the distance and can't understand, like, what we're going through and hasn't actually walked exactly the path that we have walked. In our most sorrowful, overwhelmed, heavy moment, we can count on the fact that Jesus has been there but more. That should be really encouraging to us. That seems, like, very loving to me. So he prays this, but then he finishes it out with this incredible statement that proves everything that he's been saying up until this point. Here's what he says, yet not what I will, but what you will. This is so significant. This is so beautiful. Because if you remember, if you've been listening, this has come up over and over and over again, that being a part of God's kingdom requires denying ourselves and picking up our cross and following Jesus. And what we see here in this moment is Jesus is not a teacher that says, do what I say, not as I do. He is literally denying himself and is about to pick up a literal cross. He's been where we have been. It makes it all the more uh, compelling to follow in his footsteps. Jesus is just having this agonizing night, darkest night of his life. And we would like to believe that his best friends would probably have his back in this moment, right? But no. Verse 37 says, And he came back from praying, and he found them sleeping. Found them dead asleep. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? And Jesus doesn't say this, but I feel like the feeling is, dude, you just said that you were going to die for me, and then you fell asleep when I left you for an hour. Do you not see the disconnect here? 
He says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, like Jesus sees the potential in Peter. He sees who Peter could be. He maybe even sees what Peter really wants, but he says the flesh is weak and it sure seems to be winning right now. Verse 39, and again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words, going before his father once again, saying, if there's any other way, but not my will, your will, God. And again, he came and found them sleeping a second time. For their eyes were very heavy, which that's how being tired works, so that makes sense. And they did not know how to answer him, which I wouldn't either. Could you imagine Jesus coming to you one time and be like, you need to wake up. And then he comes back a second time. I mean, what do you say at that point, right? He's like, yeah, sorry. And that's where they're at. And then he came, in verse 41, a third time. And said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Not once, not twice. Three times when he came back, they were dead asleep. He says, it is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And whatever calm before the storm might have existed this night, it's about to be thrown out the window. Things are going to start to get crazier and crazier from this point forward. And the disciples are going to see what they thought was Jesus' mission, what they thought was Jesus' kingdom, begin to fall apart in their eyes. But what we know, having seen the full picture, is that things weren't falling apart. Instead, we know that the most significant thing that Jesus came to do was about to happen. So let's view, let's view that through this lens. Here we are on the eve of the most important thing Jesus did while he was here. We know from having the big picture that the most significant of ministries was about to occur. And the disciples, where do we find them? Snoring. Where hours before, they got this beautiful picture of God's grace and God's promise to them. They made this massive declaration of loyalty, yet here they are on the eve of the most important thing that could happen. Mouths wide open, flies buzzing around. Like, why? I, I asked that question. How do you get there? How do you get there from sharing this meal, this communion, very first communion meal with Jesus, to being asleep in his most like dire moment on the eve of the most important thing he would ever do. How do you get there? I think the reality is they just did not get what Jesus was saying because it did not fit with what they thought should happen. They were very concerned and very wrapped up in their own little way and their own little lives and what they thought the kingdom should look like and what would work best for them. So they completely missed the significance of what was about to happen and found themselves sleeping through it. As I read this, I just cannot get away from the parallels that seem to exist between this situation and where we're at right now. This has been a, a, a year, right? <laughs> it's not been great. Let's not pretend like it has been. There's been a lot of grief. There's been a lot of disappointment. There's been a lot of things, and there's been a lot of talking about it all, which I'm sorry, I'm talking about it again. But it also has been an incredibly revealing year, has it not? We have seen all sorts of things that people could keep under the surface, that organizations could keep under the surface when life is at its most suitable or whatever. And we've seen the, 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 the scab get ripped off, and we've seen everything that is underneath there come rushing out. 
We've seen it in churches. We've seen it in organizations. We've seen it in our own lives. And, and maybe for some of us, what's coming out is like, we're not super pleased with that. I think if we're honest, probably most of us have been there. It's been very revealing. And I think that God wants to use this year that he has been revealing all kinds of bad motivations and, and, and poor decisions and compromises and all this stuff that's going on in our lives. I think he wants to use it for something significant. Man, the more I hear about what God is doing all over the world, the more sure I am that we are on an eve of something really significant happening. I really do think that, that we as, as the, the church, big church, Christian family, we are, we are on the cusp of God doing something kind of unique and pretty significant in the world around us. But what I am scared to death of is that when that moment comes, Jesus is going to find me asleep. And when that moment comes, Jesus is going to find us asleep. We in the North American church, and I'm not trashing on the church, it's done wonderful things, but we as the Western North American church have somehow taken Jesus' call into our life and all the stuff that we like doing, mashed it together to the point where we're like, it looks good enough, let's do this. We've done that. And we've grown complacent. And we've, we've been willing to compromise. We haven't taken Jesus at his word. And when we continue to walk that path, it makes us tired and it makes our eyes heavy, and it takes us to this place where when God actually wants to do something significant, he might just find us asleep. We have to wake up. We have to wake up to let go of the things that we thought were so important, to embrace things that we never thought we would embrace for the sake of the kingdom that are true and that are of Jesus and that reflect his heart and his character. We have to be willing to let go of the, the privilege and the entitlement and all the perks maybe that we've experienced as the North American church for the last however many hundred years. We're not even, we're not even supposed to be like that. Anytime that we've seen the church throughout history, if you look back through history, anytime the church has all the power in a culture, that's when corruption starts to, to creep in. Just look every single time. And when the church is hated and when the church is persecuted is when Jesus does his best work through the church. But we've been so comfortable that I think we are really willing to just snooze this whole thing away. But could you imagine if we, as Crosspoint, decided when Jesus is ready to do something significant, he's going to find us awake and alert and ready to go. That's my prayer for us. That's my prayer for the North American church in general, because otherwise we're, we're done. We have to wake up. But here's the encouraging thing. If we've been found sleeping, which I think many of us have, if we've been found with our eyes heavy, maybe just going through life in a daze, there is hope. Jesus, this Jesus who brings the, the dead to life can surely wake us up out of our stupor. Because remember, when we fail, this brings us back to where we started, when we fail, he never does. His promises stay. He is still right there. And through his strength, not through our own, when we get and understand and internalize the heart of his kingdom, which we have spent the past however many months we've been walking through Mark looking at, 
We can go from heavy-eyed to awake and alert. Just look, at, just look at these same people who failed Jesus in this passage of Scripture that we're looking at. They went from people who couldn't even stay awake for an hour to people who had seemingly endless energy, who preached so much that other people fell asleep and fell out of windows. These are sheep who at one point were scattered, who became bold and ran toward danger. These are people like Peter, who one moment was boasting about his commitment And the next, letting a teenage girl bully him into denying he ever even knew who Jesus was. We see the transition of him becoming someone who would actually fulfill that statement that he would die for Jesus. In fact, he did give up his life for Jesus, just like so many others. So what's the difference between these people now that we read about them in this passage to who they would eventually become? I think quite simply, they got it. They woke up. They realized what Jesus has done. And so they stopped trying to fit him into what they thought he should be. They allowed themselves to be changed by the Holy Spirit. They trusted Jesus at his word and believed Jesus at his promises, and God used them to change the world. And at this moment of seeming significance in the world that we live in right now, let's be found awake. Let's be found as people who are remembering who the real king is and who is actually one and who is ready to do what he's called us to do. But the only way to cling to that hope in the midst of a lot of heaviness is to go back to what he has actually done. That on the feet of every failure or on the heels of every failure that we have ever made, Jesus promises endure. If we believe that, We'll be awake, and I really do believe we'll be ready. Would you pray with me? The band's going to come up. And I would just say these last uh, few songs that we sing together, um, let our prayer just be, Jesus, if, if I'm asleep, if I'm just, if I'm just uh, sleepwalking through life here, God, wake me up. Whatever it takes, wake me up, because I want to be ready for what you want to do. If Jesus' sacrifice has just become just another part of the story, just a ritual, something that doesn't have any significance for you. Let's go before God and ask, God, remind me what's actually going on here, the full weight of what you have have done on my behalf, and let me live in that truth. Those are two great ways for us to start here this morning. Would you pray with me? And we're going to worship together. Jesus, thank you. Thank you so much for what you've done. Lord, I I just really pray that we would never get used to it, that we would never take it for granted, that we would never manipulate it to be what we want it to be, but Lord, that we would deny ourselves, pick up our cross and follow you in what you would have us do. God, I really do believe, I don't know the time frame, I don't know how it's going to go, but Lord, you really seem to be doing something unique in the world right now. In the midst of all of this heaviness, you are inserting some incredible hope, and I really believe that, God. May this church, may these people be people that when you show up and you are ready to work, that we would be awake and alert, knowing exactly where our strength comes from, knowing exactly where our hope comes from, and that is from you not to bring any kind of glory or fame to ourselves, but so that a world who so desperately needs to see you can see you clearly through us. God, we love you. Speak to us as we sing these praises to you. In your awesome name, 
Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. 